Good morning. We're so glad that you're able to join us today online. As you can see, because of the uh, corona and the COVID situation, we are still restricted from how we're able to meet. And so we're still broadcasting from my office. I have no idea when we'll be able to meet again, but we will keep you apprised if you follow us on either Facebook or on our website and keep you up to date when we'll eventually be able to meet together. I want to let you know that uh, all of us are uh, healthy and doing well and uh, we miss you guys and really are looking forward to when we can get back together and meet with you all again. Let, let's uh, begin with prayer. Gracious Father, we, we are so thankful for your love and your mercy and your goodness to us. And we ask that your spirit will join us in lightening our minds, draw our hearts together. Be with our friends that are joining us from all over the world that are tuning in with us and those who are going to follow later um, when, uh, when their uh, time permits. Pray that you will um, intervene in their lives as you know they they need uh, your service, services and interventions best, and I pray that you will guide in uh, bringing about the events on planet Earth to ultimately lead to your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. You can follow us on the Facebook today, but uh, unfortunately we don't have anyone here that is able to follow along, and so I won't be able to take any questions today. We'll try to remedy that for future classes, so if you submit questions, don't be discouraged if uh, we don't ask them because there's no one here that's able to follow us today. We just have our crew that's able to broadcast. Other announcements, I uh, want to remind you that we do have the remedy, remedy Audio available for streaming on SoundCloud. Uh, we uh, have the uh, Journal of the Watcher video free streaming on our website. And uh, I want to remind you of the Power of Love training and equipping course. It's also free, and all those resources are available at our website. We're getting a lot of positive feedback from people. And don't forget to check out our weekly blogs um, if you don't follow us on Facebook when we post them. Our lesson this week is Lesson 6 in the study guide, How to Interpret Scripture, and the title is, Why is Interpretation Needed? And the memory verse is from Hebrews 11.6 in the New King James, which reads, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, what does it mean? Does it mean more than believing God exists and rewards those who seek him? If you remember what James wrote in James 2.19, you believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Sounds like the demons believe that God is, but they live in fear of him. So having faith has to be more than merely believing God is. Faith must mean trusting him. Why do you think the demons who believe in God fear him? Has God stopped loving them? Does God have a desire in his heart to harm them? If it were possible for God to heal the hearts and minds of the demons and restore them to righteousness, do you think God would do it? So is God a being whom the demons need to actually fear? Is he against them, in other words? No, their fear is the inevitable unavoidable result of sin. Just as Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Yet God remained their friend. God was out to save them, to heal them, to redeem them, but they were afraid of him. Why? Because of what sin does in the hearts and minds of sinners. God is the source of truth, and he presents truth to win us to trust. Sinners are free to accept 
or reject the truth. If one rejects the truth, what is left for the mind to rest upon? Only lies. And what happens in the mind if one clings to lies? They become more fearful and more selfish. Thus the demons are deluded. They believe lies that God is the source of pain, suffering, torment, death, and this is why they fear him. Many humans have done the same thing, and they also fear God. In fact, many humans are more afraid of God who is trying to save them than the sin in their life which is destroying them. This is classic projection, projecting out of oneself the evil that's in oneself and, and labeling it or putting it on some other person around them. And what happens when we believe the lie and conclude that some other intelligence is out to get us, wants to punish us, must in fact torture and kill us? What happens to our ability to trust them, which is the question of faith? You can have no faith or trust in a being who you believe is out to torture and kill you. And this is the heart and the root of Satan's lies about God. This is how he presents God. This is what happens when you accept the human law model, uh, imposed rules view, and conceive of justice as inflicting just penalties. Then God becomes the source of pain and suffering from whom we need to be protected, and thus we may believe in God, but just like the demons, we won't trust him, and we'll create theologies that are designed to hide us and protect us from God, which is basically almost all Christian theology. We can only really find script, uh, harmony in Scripture when we return to design law. The wages of sin is death. There is a real penalty, a real punishment from sin. Yet God remains completely trustworthy as the one whom is seeking to heal us, not the one we need to be protected from. This, is, this happens when we understand how reality works. Deviations from God's laws injure and destroy those who violate them. And God is working to put this law back in the hearts and minds of all who trust him. Thus, we can have harmony. Yes, the wages of sin is death. Yes, God never violates his designs and never breaks his laws. And we have to be restored to live in harmony with those. We realize that Jesus' death was an absolute necessity for our salvation, but not for legal reasons, not to influence his father, but to destroy the lies so we can see God for who he is and be one to trust, and then in trust experience the indwelling spirit who takes the victories of Christ and reproduces it in us. So Christ had to win us to trust and fix the damage done to his creation. Understanding design law also gives us insight as to why human beings can be saved, but the fallen angels cannot. You see, Adam and Eve were deceived, and in that deception they made a choice that damaged them, took them out of harmony with God's law. They were damaged by this, but they were not yet beyond healing. Lucifer and the angels who fell with him persisted in their rebellion in heaven until they had destroyed within themselves the faculties that respond to truth and love, and they were beyond healing. There was nothing more God could do to restore them to love and trust. 
One of the founders of the SDA Church in the book The Great Controversy 495 describes it this way. God in his great mercy bore along with Lucifer. He was not immediately degraded from his exalted station when he first indulged the spirit of discontent, nor even when he began to present his false claims before the loyal angels. Why not immediately degraded? Because sin damages slowly. It isn't a legal removal of authority uh, by the authority in charge when one sins. That's not the problem. It actually changes the sinner. There was, there was still opportunity in heaven for Lucifer to be cured and healed, but notice Lucifer uh, was already bearing false witness, which is a transgression of the law. So transgressing the law of heaven, notice what the, this author writes next. Long was he retained in heaven. Again and again he was offered pardon on the condition of repentance and submission. Repentance, change of heart, being restored back to God's design. Submitting to God's uh, uh, protocols and principles and how he has designed life. Notice, pardon was not on the condition of a blood payment. There was no death penalty. No payment or appeasement or propitiation of any kind was required. What was required? A transformation of Lucifer's heart back to God's design, love, and truth. Healing. Keep on with the quote. Such efforts as only infinite love and wisdom could devise were made to convince him of his error. Truth and love were waging against lies and selfishness. Continue with the quote. The spirit of discontent had never before been known in heaven. Lucifer himself did not foresee whether he was drifting. He did not understand the real nature of his feelings. But as his disaffection was proved to be without cause, Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong that the divine claims were just, that he ought to acknowledge them as such before all heaven. He, had he done this, he might have saved himself and many angels. Ha, he had not at this time fully cast off his allegiance to God. He knew the truth, and his heart was not fully hardened against God. His conscience wasn't fully seared. He could have chosen to repent at this point and submit and be restored, but he didn't. Continuing on with the quote. Though he had forsaken his position as a covering cherub, yet if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom and satisfied to fill the, the place appointed him in God's great plan, he would have been reinstated to his office. Notice, God wouldn't have required him to be removed from his office. No punishment of any kind would have been inflicted upon Lucifer. Why? Because God's laws are design laws. And when healing takes place, when it's healthy again, when it's operating in perfection as God designed, there is no need to punish. It's Satan's lie that sin must be punished. And this lie has infected human thinking and has infected Christianity. And, and what in reality, God doesn't have to punish sin. What he does is he eradicates, removes, purges, heals, cures from sin. That's what he does. Continuing on with the quote. But pride forbade him to submit. He persistently defended his own course, maintained that he had no need of repentance, and fully committed himself in the great controversy against the Maker. And what happens in the mind of those who reject truth and cling to lies? This is why Satan cannot be saved. He has hardened his mind and lies. Truth has no impact on him anymore. 
consider the one, one other quote. This is out of Desire of Ages 761. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Different position, not geographically. Different position in reality, in relationship to God, in knowledge and awareness of God's character, methods, principles, and, and purposes. Man did not understand to the level that Lucifer did. Continue on with the quote. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love, understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness. Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. Pause. Why not? Was Jesus unwilling to give his life for Lucifer? No. That wasn't the problem. Jesus loved Lucifer. Absolutely. Jesus would have given his life for him, but it wouldn't have done any good because Lucifer has already rejected the truth about God's character and methods of love. And such truth and revelation would have no impact on him. Satan had changed himself, destroying the faculties to respond to love and truth. But notice, continuing with the quote, how man was in a different position. Continuing on. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry, the height and depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope, Notice what the hope is in. In the knowledge of God's love, by beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. Our hope being drawn back to God by beholding his character of love. This is why Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Free from fear of God. Free to trust him. And why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The lies of Satan are refuted. And in trust, we open our hearts and experience the victory that Christ has achieved in our behalf as a human being. And we become partakers of the divine nature. So why is it impossible to please God without trust? Because trust is what opens our hearts to the Holy Spirit, to be healed and transformed. God is not pleased with task performance, with good task performance in those who are still dying in sin. God is pleased with the healing and saving of his children. Sunday's lesson, the lesson title is Presuppositions and points out that all of us have our biases, our histories, our assumptions, life experiences that impact how we see the world, including how we read scripture. Learning how to examine our own biases and assumptions and moving more towards more accurate reality-based assessments is a sign of maturity. Graham, Graham Maxwell used to use the acronym FOTAP, F-O-T-A-P, the fallacy of the assumed premise. Assuming something to be true that is not yet proven true or in fact is not true deceives one and leads us to draw conclusions that are inaccurate or false. During this COVID pandemic, I have pointed this out many times. If you have listened carefully to doctors Fauci and Burks, as they have given their projections and potential impacts and deaths, they have said repeatedly the following. The models are only as good as the assumptions they are based upon. What does that mean? The models and projections that you've been hearing and we've been told are not based on facts. They're based on assumptions. And the assumptions are drawn from certain facts. What are the facts? Let me give you the facts about the COVID. 
coronavirus, COVID-19, exists, and it is a virus. That's a fact. COVID-19 is contagious. That's a fact. COVID-19 causes sickness, and in some people, death. That's a fact. But the rate of transmission, the virulence, how deadly it is, how lethal it is, what percentage of people in the population actually have it, what percentage of people will actually die from it, those are all assumptions. Those are not facts. There's no hard data yet that actually nails down any of that data. We all assume. And that's why, at one point, projections of 2 million American deaths, and then 1 million American deaths, and 200,000 American deaths, and then 100,000 American deaths. And it keeps changing because as more data comes in, the assumptions, which are based on the little facts that we have, keep changing. Situations like the current COVID pandemic are perfect grounds for evil and good to be manifest. Good and evil to be manifest. Good. People who willingly put themselves in harm's way to help others, such as the healthcare workers. People who willingly sacrifice to help others, socially distancing, closing their business, taking financial hardship in order to help slow the spread of this disease, sharing what they have with other people who don't have, even life-saving treatments. All of these are manifestations of love for our, our fellow citizens and human beings, and we have seen these manifestations. But evil is also manifested in situations like this. Hoarding, exploitation, price gouging, not caring for anyone but themselves, seeking to take advantage of others, including using the situation to advantage or or advance unrelated causes, seeking to take away liberties. Remember, freedom is one of God's design laws, and encroachments on liberties will always incite rebellion using the situation to vilify or malign other people. So we have seen also, as we've seen good being manifested in our society during this, we've seen evil being manifested. Such situations as the decisions being made in in the world by the world leaders all across the world today are perfect breeding ground for people who want to divide us and cause hostilities. Why is this a perfect breeding ground for that? Because let me, let me make it very clear. There are no absolute right decisions. These are all cost-benefit analysis, pro-con decision-making. Closing the economy at all, closing down businesses or not. Opening the economy back at a certain time, changing the date, going a different place. All of these decisions are not absolute rights or wrongs. They have consequences. To close it or not close it will result in outcomes. If you close it, business, certain people will be harmed, certain people will be benefited. If you don't, certain people will be harmed and certain people will be benefited. Every decision will have pros and will have cons, which means that those who seek to divide and cause disruption and hostility will use these circumstances to criticize and attack regardless of what the other side or the other people do. The mature, those who are looking to bring unity, will look toward respecting people and understand the difficulty in decision-making and realize there is no right and we're doing the best that we can for the most to get the best outcome from all people involved while trying to respect people in this difficult time. It also goes to the level of maturity people have. Immature people don't like making decisions that are not absolutely right or absolutely wrong, where there is a 
potential risk involved that is unforeseen and you do the best you can with the information you have. This is the type of mature decision making that physicians are trained to do, weighing the pros, cons, risks involved, but not knowing the future and not knowing the absolute outcomes, make the best decision you can with the greatest likelihood of helping those. But immature people often can't tolerate such decision-making. I've seen it, and any physicians that you know, you can ask, they've seen it. They will often have, in difficult decision-making, in an ER, in an ICU, uh, present the pros, cons, risks to family, and sometimes family member will just ask the doctor, tell us what you would do. They don't want to make the decision. They want somebody else to make the decision for them. And then, if that happens, somebody in authority makes a decision, best intentions, trying to make the best outcome, and things don't turn out the way the person who refused to make the decision wants, then they turn on the person often and will attack them. This happens, and it's happening in our society right now. I challenge you to look and see that, that there are no right and wrong. There are only the best decisions we can make. And let's, uh, let's try to be unifiers rather than dividers in our, in our countries and around the world right now. Assumptions make a big difference in any field of study, in all of our decision-making. Science makes assumptions that cause faulty conclusions, particularly when it's dealing with or origin of life science, science about how life began on planet Earth. Here's just a partial list of assumptions that corrupt the conclusions that lead scientists to teach godless theories of origins. And these teachings are in every school system in Western societies, and they're all based on assumptions that are unprovable, and in fact, assumptions that in the data, the facts are contradictory toward. But, but here's some of the assumptions. There is no God. That's an assumption. It is possible, there's another assumption. It is possible for physical matter to organize itself without intelligent input. That's an assumption. It's possible for inorganic, lifeless physical matter to generate life on its own. That's an assumption. Contradictory to what can be proven. In fact, science proves those two assumptions wrong. Carbon-14 in our atmosphere is the same concentration today as it was thousands of years ago. An unprovable assumption. There, there was no worldwide flood. There was no water layer above the earth before the flood or at any time in history. Radio decay of isotopes is constant and doesn't change. That's an assumption, which is core to much of the dating processes. But we now have evidence that when solar flares go off, radio decay of isotopes actually changes. And if the sun burned significantly high, hotter, as the Bible indicates, prior to the flood, then there is reason to believe that radio decay of isotopes decayed at a different rate prior to the flood. And so all the dating mechanisms are based on an assumption that's unprovable. Advancement of the species occurs through mutations of the gene code. Again, an assumption that the science proves to be false because there is no mutation that's ever been identified that advances a species. They all decay and damage. So every one of these assumptions are not proven facts and are not supported by the evidence. Thus, people who hold them draw conclusions that are all assumed to be true but are contradictory to what the evidence actually supports. 
This happens all the time, particularly in godless origin science. What about in theology? What are some of the false premises in Christianity that have corrupted the truth about God? Well, number one, and this is what we emphasize over and over again, is that God's law functions like human law. That's an assumption that is actually disproved by Scripture, disproved by science, and disproved by real-life experiences. God's laws are the laws upon which reality are built to operate. But assuming it functions like human law, then a whole other bunch of assumptions and conclusions come down. Justice requires God to punish sin. False assumption based on a false assumption about God's law. Sin must be punished by some, and someone has to pay the penalty. Therefore, Jesus came to take our punishment. That's assumed. Jesus, Jesus came to be punished. God, in order to punish sin, uh, had to punish Jesus. So God killed Jesus. God created human beings in Eden, Eden with immortality so that no matter what they did, they would always live forever. Ever. Again, an assumption. Jesus is not fully God, as some people assume. Or there is no Holy Spirit, another assumption. There's lots of assumptions in Christianity. All the premises are assumptions, when accepted, undermine our ability to trust God, because they undermine the truth of God's character. Every one of the ones I've listed, and his trustworthiness. They also undermine our intelligent understanding of God, and what he is trying to accomplish, and thus limit our ability to intelligently participate. When we have false assumptions in how reality works, we may have love in our heart for God, we may want to serve God, but if we have false assumptions of how his kingdom and methods work, then our work towards his kingdom may actually be working against him. And we see that in the Pharisees in Christ's day who claimed to be working for God, but were actually working against him because they were practicing methods that were contrary to God's methods. Recently, I've again received emails from people who are being confronted by those who advance the position that there is no Trinity, that there is no Holy Spirit, and that they say that the Holy Spirit is merely the Father's presence. Understand that this attack is an attack on the character of God. If you would like a full exploration of the Bible text that give the biblical foundation and evidence for the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with each having their unique identity and individuality, then you can go to our website, comeandreason.com, and in the search engine, you just type the word Trinity, and you can find a couple of blogs where I list all of the Bible evidences for that. I'm not going to go through that in our class today. Because to me, the most important evidence, and I just give that resource because I want you to understand it's all based in Scripture, but the most important is understanding God's design, His law, for, for reality, and his nature, God's character. The Bible says that God is love. Further, the Bible teaches that love is not self-seeking. It's not about self. It's other-centered. It's outward-moving. It's giving. It's functional. If God is love, then God has to be outward-moving. He has to be giving. He has to be beneficent. It can't be about him. Therefore, God being love could not be love in isolation because love requires an object to function, to give, to pour itself upon. Love is other-centered. If we make the argument that at some point in eternity past, there was a time in which God existed in a singularity, as an isolated being, then at that point, God is something other than love. I reject that. God's nature and character of love, rightly understood, is the most powerful argument for the plurality of God. We see it in the creation of humankind. Let us, let us 
make man in our image, the two shall be one, male and female, and in their unity with God, uh, male, female, husband, wife, and God, we have the triune perfection of love. And the least number that you can have to have genuine other-centered love is three. With two, you can have narcissistic reinforcement. And I've seen this in couples where they both adore and even worship each other. Everything is fine as long as they're constantly pouring their attention into the other. But then a child comes along, and when the mother begins to give her attention and time to the child, the father becomes angry and jealous. You see, he did not really love his wife. He loved the attention he was getting from his wife and what she did for him. And now is angry he isn't getting it anymore. He is not actually sacrificing self for his family. This is not love. It takes three. Satan seeks to destroy the truth about the plurality of the Godhead because it undermines the truth about God's character of love and his methods and principles and places an obstacle to the only healing remedy for sin. God's perfect love that casts out fear. As we see the truth about God is revealed in Jesus, the lies about him are removed, we are one to trust, and then he pours his love into our hearts, and it's the Holy Spirit who actually brings and dwells in our hearts and is the operating agency that heals us. Here's a quotation of the book, Desire of Ages, 671. Consider what this author wrote. See if you agree or disagree. In describing his, to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help he had provided for his church. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent... And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. Pause. Consider, think, reflect, why is that the case? In what reality is this true? In what reality would this not be true? In the reality, which is not reality at all, in the paradigm of the penal legal model in which God's law works like human law, this is not necessary. It's not true. In that paradigm, Jesus pays a legal price. Under the legal price, we have that applied to our record book in heaven. And under the record book in heaven, we're declared to be righteous even though we're not, and everything's accounted for. There is no need for the Holy Spirit to make effectual what Christ has done because we get legal pardon, and, we get, and, that, and that's the deal. But that's not reality. That's not how God's kingdom works. God's kingdom is the kingdom of life, And in order for sinners to be saved, we have to be transformed and healed. And so the victory of Christ has to be reproduced in our hearts and minds, and the Holy Spirit takes the victory of Christ and reproduces it in all that trust him. Thus, we become partakers of the divine nature. Continue on with the quote. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to the satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead. This author identifies the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead, an individual, third one. Continuing on with the quote, who would come with no modified energy but with the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. Why? 
because what Jesus wrought out, a perfect human character, is only effectual in living beings. It doesn't have effect on transcription. It doesn't have effect on letters and books. It has effect on living beings, hearts and minds, so that we become renewed, we become reborn, we have the heart circumcised by the Spirit, we become recreated, we have the heart of stone removed and the heart of uh, flesh put in. It is the Spirit of God indwelling that renews and makes us victors in Christ. And continuing with the quote, it is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his Spirit as the divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his character upon his church. Can you see why Satan does not want people to believe in a Holy Spirit? If he can erase your belief in the Holy Spirit and get you to operate under a legal paradigm in which Jesus is in heaven applying his blood to record books in heaven, but you're not actually opening yourself to the indwelling spirit, you remain in a state of, of paralysis, of infancy at the best, and perhaps even getting worse rather than becoming transformed. Here's another quote from the same author in the book Evangelism, page uh, 615. It says, there are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of the three, uh, these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. It's all about healing and transformation. And the Holy Spirit is the agency that takes the victories of Christ and reproduces it in us. I encourage you to invite the Spirit into your heart and mind. The lesson points out that the disciples had wrong understanding of the uh, coming Messiah. They were looking for someone to throw off the Romans and rule from an earthly throne. Question. Where did the disciples get the wrong ideas about the coming Messiah? Did they get this from their personal study of Scripture? Or did they get it from the church authorities? This leads us to another premise, which was addressed in last week's lesson by the lesson authors. And many still operate under this false premise or presupposition. And here's, some, here's how this one goes in a variety of different ways. Spiritual enlightenment requires a theological education. Or, we must be told by a church leader what the Bible means. Or, the Bible can only be rightly understood on its own, divorced from science and real-life experiences. I have had certain church leaders reject what we teach in our ministry because the reason they give, they have a degree in theology and I don't. Therefore, their degree in theology makes them the authority. Notice that such an argument is not based on truth or evidence or facts or reason or scripture, but on authority of office. Such a conclusion is to be rejected. This was the argument given to Jesus by the Pharisees. Who is this man having never learned, having never been taught in our theology? How can he possibly teach these things? This way of thinking has been around for a long time, and it was also part of the problem that the disciples the apostles faced after the, uh, after the crucifixion. Before the crucifixion, 
They struggled with this, still giving deference to them, and they thought the scribes and Pharisees, as the church leaders, knew better, and so they deferred to their teachings, and that's why they were looking for the Messiah to come throw off the Roman yoke, because they deferred. How many Christians do the same thing today? Look to someone with a theological degree or church authority or holding office to tell them the answer, rather than being like the Bereans and Acts who study these things out for themselves. And that's why we say in here, we're not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to challenge you to think, to reason, to be fully persuaded in your own mind, as it says in Romans 14. In the Old Testament, as we look through human history, who were the ones at the forefront of opposing advancing truth, of opposing God's message to the people, of leading the people into worshiping false images of God? Well, I'll let Jeremiah tell you. Jeremiah 2, verse 8. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Jesus, as a child, did not get his education in the church schools, the schools of the prophets. Why not? Why didn't he do that? One Bible commentator, um, one of the founders of the Adventist Church, in the book The Story of Jesus, page 30, wrote the following. In the days of Christ, the Jews gave much care to the education of their children. Their schools were connected with the synagogues or places of worship, and the teachers were called rabbis, men who were supposed to be very learned. Jesus did not go to these schools, for they taught many things that were not true. Instead of the word of God, the sayings of men were studied, and often these were contrary to that which God taught through his prophets. And as an adult, Jesus said to the theologians of his day, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over the land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. When Christ selected his twelve apostles to build his church upon, how many of them had theological training? None. They were fishermen and, and tax collector, regular people. Why didn't Christ pick at least one from, with a seminary degree, from the Sanhedrin? Well, this is a Bible commentary of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, 5 Bible Commentary, 1088. reads as follows. The work of Jesus was to reveal the character of the Father and to unfold the truth which he himself had spoken through the prophets and apostles. But there was found no place for the truth in those wise and prudent men. Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, had to pass by self-righteous Pharisees and take his disciples from unlearned fishers of men of hum- and men of humble rank. These who had never been to the rabbis, who had never sat, sat in the schools of the prophets, who had, been members, who had not been members of the Sanhedrin, whose hearts were not bound about with their own ideas, these he took and educated for his own use. He could make them as new bottles for new wine of his kingdom. These were the babes for whom the father could reveal spiritual things. But the priests and rulers, the scribes and Pharisees who claimed to be the depositories of knowledge could give no room for the principles of Christianity. And what about through the Dark Ages? Who was the opposing of Martin Luther? Now, of course, Martin Luther did have a degree in theology, so I want to be clear, it is also true that God has had his great theologians. I want to say that again because I, I just hammered this pretty hard. Let's, let's be true here and be fair. God has had his great theologians. Paul. Martin Luther, but you will notice most of the great theologians for God had to unlearn their seminary training 
before they could take the Bible knowledge that they were taught and apply it properly. Paul had to spend three years in the desert being re-educated by Christ, and then all that knowledge he had of Scripture was reframed in a new setting and became powerful. But he had to get rid of the false setting that the Pharisees and the, and the uh, schools of the prophets had taught him. Same thing with Martin Luther. Martin Luther, great man of Bible knowledge, but he had to get rid of so much of the church tradition and the setting upon which it was placed before he could actually become effective in leading the Reformation. And so, too, the Reformers had to give up and had to relearn and had to unlearn many things. Does this mean that those with theological education cannot be men of God or, uh, or women of God? Of course not. Absolutely not. We must remember there have been great ones. Nicodemus, Joseph Arimathema, Arimathema and so forth. But the point I'm trying to make in my psychiatry residency, same point for me, in my psychiatry residency, I was under incredible pressures. And the field of psychiatry is one of the fields in which has the highest number of people who enter believing in God, coming out four years later no longer believing in God, because these philosophies are very intellectual and godless. So when I was in my residency, for every hour I studied these psychiatric theorists, I spent two hours studying scripture. Because education changes us. Most theology programs that I'm aware of, and if you're aware of some that don't do this, I'd love to know about them, but most theology programs assume God's law functions like human law, at least a portion of it, and thus they indoctrinate people to believe in an imperial God who punishes sin to be just. This is a corruption, and it's the wrong framework, and thus many people come out of seminary training doubling down on the imperialistic view of God. Monday's lesson, second paragraph, it says, But as any good translator knows, every translation always involves some kind of interpretation. Some words in one language do not have an exact equivalent in another. The art and skill of carefully translating and then interpreting text is called hermeneutics. This is exactly correct. I think the, uh, the lesson authors have got this exactly right. There's no word-for-word -word translation because some words don't even exist in, in various languages. So you have to get the approximation of the idea and the meaning across. And the lesson rightly points out with today's lexicons, we really don't need to know the original languages to get the proper meaning. We can pair a lot of different ones together and we can discern the, the meaning. I thought I'd just share one little, uh, two verses from the NIV, the good news and then the remedy. And this is out of Psalms 137, 8 and 9, the hermeneutics. And because my premise, as I've told you all along, the best translations don't come from having the best understanding of the languages. It's those premises and those assumptions we have when we go to the Bible that ultimately causes us to interpret the meaning differently. And so if we have an imperial, penal, legal model that we assume God operates upon, then we come to certain conclusions. If we have a great controversy model over God's character and we understand his methods are design laws and his motives are, are love and truth, then we come to different conclusions. And so here's Psalms 137, 8, nine from the NIV. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for you have uh, for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is from the Good News translation. Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy are those who pay you back for what you have done to us, who take your babies and smash them against the rock. 
And this is from the remedy. O people of Babylon who cling to selfishness, you are doomed to destruction. Happy are those who are finished with you, just as you deserve, who have weaned themselves from you. Happy are they who take your children to fall upon the the rock, with a capital R, and be broken. In other words, we are happy when we take people away from the selfish world and bring them to Jesus when they fall upon the rock, Jesus Christ, and have their hearts broken and be reborn. That's what I understand it to mean. Not some malicious thing that we get happy by taking little babies and smashing them on rocks. The first two are accurate to the words. But they are not accurate to the meaning because they don't have the great controversy. They don't understand the uh, design laws of God. They don't understand what God is trying to achieve. They actually think it's righteous for God to use power to kill people. Tuesday's lesson. The lesson points out that if we try to understand the Bible with today's cultural norms, that we are likely to draw false conclusions. The first paragraph reads... A background knowledge to Near East culture is helpful for understanding some biblical passages. For example, Hebrew culture attributed responsibility to an individual for acts he did not commit, but that he allowed to happen. Therefore, the inspired writers of the scriptures commonly credit God for doing actively that which in Western thought we would say he permits or does not prevent from happening. For example, hardening a Pharaoh's heart. This is well said, and it is so true. Yet sadly, I very rarely see this truth applied to many sermons about God. Too often I still hear people taking a Bible story that says God did something and teaching God is the source of pain or suffering or death. This happens because of the false assumptions again, that God's law works like human law, or that our culture and Bible culture are the same, and so we attribute God to doing things that he permits. Second paragraph, culture also raises some important uh, hermeneutical questions. Is the, Bible culturally, is the Bible culturally conditioned and thus only relative to that culture in, in, in what it asserts, or does the divine message given in a particular culture transcend this particular culture and speak to all human beings? What happens if one's own culture, cultural experience becomes the basis and litmus test for our own interpretation of Scripture? If one has a rules approach to scripture, this is very difficult. They have a hard time understanding the cultural differences. But if one has a design law, it becomes actually quite easy. Rules approach means that the Bible is a guidebook, uh, right rules, lists of these to be done and sins to be shunned. Thus, we must study the Bible to find the right rules and, and, uh, and the right way to keep those rules. And this method of thinking... Uh, often leads to many divisions. Some believe it's important to keep all the Levitical laws and all the sanctuary and feast days. Others believe those rules don't apply to us anymore, and so we have division. Some believe that the church has the authority to determine the rules. Others believe that each person should determine the rules uh, by studying the Bible. Other people believe that the Bible sets the rules, and we don't have a right to determine them. We just have to discover them and identify them, but we aren't allowed to change them, and thus, and thus more division. But those who operate under principles, the protocols upon which God built reality, understand any rules given were simply tools to lead us back to the principles, lead us back to God for healing. So we read in 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8, uh, going through 11, it's the NIV. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not 
for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, the murderers, the adulterers and perverts, the slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. The written law was not given as a means of salvation. It wasn't even given for righteous people. It was given for those who are sick to diagnose them, inform them, and lead them back to the heavenly physician for healing. So from the remedy. We know that the written law is a diagnostic instrument for the soul, and it is good if used properly. We also know that the diagnostic tool was not made for the spiritually healthy, but for those who are selfish in character, those who are spiritually diseased, who don't know God, who don't love others but kill their fathers and mothers, the ill at heart, murderers, sexual perverts and adulterers, human traffickers, liars, deceivers, and for everyone and everything else that is out of harmony with God's design for life or doesn't harmonize with the incredible truth that God, of God, about God's character of love which he has entrusted me to share. We see this is reality. This is what the purpose of the law. So we look to scripture to understand and come back to know God and his principles and methods. And the tools that God has given us can be very helpful in identifying where we're out of harmony with that and lead us back to God for restoration and healing. Last three paragraphs say, Though God spoke to a specific generation, he saw to it that the future generation Future generations reading the word of God could understand that those truths go beyond the local and, and limited circumstances during which the Bible texts were written. As a parallel, think of, about algebra, which was first invented in the 9th century A.D. in Baghdad. Does this mean, then, that the truths and principles of this branch of mathematics are limited only to that time and place? Of course not. The same principle applies to the truths about God's word. What did you hear? Hope you were listening, because the lesson authors really were great on this. I just love it. Validating, huge, because what do they say? The same principles apply. A principle is a design law, not a rule. And did you notice the example they gave? They gave the example of algebra, and algebra is governed by mathematical laws. These are design laws. They don't change. And so the point the lesson makes is that the Bible truths transcend time because they're design laws. And only as we identify the principles and design laws of Scripture can we apply them properly. Well said. Wednesday's lesson. What is meant by our sinful and fallen nature? What is meant? Because it's our sinful and fallen nature. Title of the lesson and how our sinful and fallen nature impacts our understanding of the Bible. Are we to blame? Is it our individual fault that we have sinful fallen natures? Did you or I ever have a choice at any time in our life to never or not have a fallen nature? What are the core attributes to the sinful fallen nature? Core attributes, fear and selfishness. And when did these attributes enter humanity? When did you first experience these drives? How do we come into possession of a sinful fallen nature? By birth, Psalms 51.5, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Why are we born with a fallen nature rather than being born without one? Why? 
Is this a legal issue? Or is it a state of being issue? Were Adam and Eve capable of having children with natures different from what they possessed? See, when we understand reality and design on how God built Adam and Eve and what he endowed them with, the capabilities and abilities, we understand that Adam and Eve could only pass on to their descendants, their children, what they possessed. And once they corrupted themselves, they could only pass on that same corruption. This is why Jesus had to become human, had to become part of this creation in order to fix the damage that Adam's act did to this creation. If God doesn't hold us accountable, and he doesn't hold us accountable for this condition, what are we held accountable for? For rejecting the remedy, the free cure that Jesus has procured and provides to us that heals us from this condition. That's what we're held accountable for. Oswald Chambers put it this way. This is from my utmost for his highest. The Bible does not say God punished the human race for one man's sin, but that the nature of sin, namely my claim to my right, to myself, that's another way of saying selfish, nature of sin, selfishness, entered into the human race through one man. But it also says that another man, capital M, speaking of Jesus, took upon himself the sin of the human race and put it away. Took upon himself this condition and got rid of it, put it away. An infinitely more profound revelation. Sin is something I am born with and cannot touch. Only God touches sin through redemption. It is through the cross of Christ that God redeemed the entire human race from the possibility of damnation through the heredity of sin. God nowhere holds a person responsible for having the heredity of sin. That's the fallen nature. And does not condemn anyone because of it. Condemnation comes when I realize that Jesus Christ came to deliver me from this heredity of sin, and yet I refuse to let him do so. From that moment, I begin to get the seal of damnation. This is the condemnation and the critical moment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. We are not condemned because we have the condition. It's not our fault. God doesn't blame us for it. He knows that. Thus he sent Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It is through Christ he provides remedy that when we trust, the Holy Spirit brings, transforms us with new hearts, new right, new motives. Thus, we are no longer controlled by fear and selfishness, even though we may be tempted by fear and selfishness. We now have another agency, another power, truth and love and trust. And through our trust in God, we experience love and we choose to follow the truth and love. And the love sets us free and casts out the fear. But if we reject the truth and the love, if we refuse to open our hearts, then, and we choose to identify with the fear, then we are held accountable for rejecting the remedy. How does this condition of fear and selfishness, our fallen nature, impact our understanding of Scripture? I will tell you, fear and selfishness causes us to view Scripture in ways that keep fear and selfishness alive. And nothing keeps fear and selfishness alive theologically more than penal substitution theology. It is the imposed law lie, God's law works like human law, 
that leads to inflamed fear and more concern about self and the grossest lies about God, who must be is now the source of inflicted pain and suffering. And we now become more fearful of God, and we need to be protected from him. So we create all these theologies with Jesus standing between us and the Father to hide us from the Father because we're terrified of him. The lie of penal substitution, keeping fear and selfishness, the carnal nature alive, teaches this. Not what the Bible teaches, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we may become the righteous for God. Oh, it teaches that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're declared legally righteous in the books of heaven, even though you're not. Think that through. Let's keep fear and selfishness alive. Let's keep the carnal nature alive in your life, because you're not really righteous. You're just declared to be legally righteous. We keep fear and selfishness alive in multiple different ways. Once saved, always saved. Well, I'm saved. I was saved in 14. Took Jesus as my Savior. Now I can live my life any way I want. Again, penal legal. He paid the price, and I'm legally saved. This is a corruption to Christianity. It's a corruption to the gospel, and it's a corruption to God's plan to actually transform people to be restored to God's ideal. The last paragraph states, we should approach the Bible in faith, in submission, and not with an attitude of criticism and doubt. Pride, self-deception, and doubt lead to an attitude of distance towards God and and the Bible that surely will lead to disobedience, that is, an unwillingness to follow God's revealed will. Faith, we are to read, approach the Bible in faith. Faith in what? Faith in a God who will punish you if you don't get the proper payment made? How about faith in the Bible? Is our faith in the Bible or is our faith in God who inspired the Bible? How about faith in the church and the church's teachings about the Bible? How about faith in what the pastor tells you about the Bible? Where do we put our faith? I know many people have faith in what the church says, what the pastor says, what the Biblical Research Institute says, what the, what the, um, what the Bible commentary says. But they don't have faith in the Bible. They don't have faith in God. What is our faith to be based upon? Does Satan want us to have faith in Satan? Or maybe we'll put it this way. Satan wants us to place our faith in false gods. Upon what does Satan want us to base our faith? What is our faith in Satan's view to be built upon? And is that somehow different than how God wants us, our faith, to act and what it's be built upon? So let's ask some questions. Thinking of Satan's desire for us to have faith in the false, God's desire for us to have faith in the true, Answer the question, who wants us to believe or have faith based on claims? And who wants us to base our faith on truth? Claims, another word for claim, proclamations, statements. Who wants us to believe or have faith without reasoning? Who wants us to reason and think and base our faith upon understanding the truth. Who wants us to claim we have faith, therefore we don't need evidence? And who wants us to look for the evidence upon which to base our faith? Who wants us to trust in emotions and powerful feelings to have our faith based on those? It feels right. Who wants us to choose truth, evidence, and facts and reality despite powerful feelings? Consider the example of Jesus in Gethsemane. Who wants us to believe or have faith based on what someone else in authority says? 
And who wants us to have faith because we are fully persuaded in our own minds? Who wants us to simply follow and have faith on what we're told? The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. And who wants us to grow up to think for ourselves, to be fully persuaded in our own mind? To be able to discern the right from the wrong. Thursday's lesson, first paragraph in Thursday's lesson, the most important question in the Bible is the question of salvation and how we are saved. After all, what else matters in the long run? Hmm, no doubt this is an important question. But where does it fit in in regard to questions about God himself? Is the central issue in the war about your salvation and my salvation, or is it about the knowledge of God? We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Jesus Christ, because why? It's a war over the knowledge of of God. Is there a concern about making the most important question about our salvation? Is there any danger, if we make that the most important question, of promoting selfishness? How much of Christianity, how much of Christianity is focused on what we must do in order to be sure that we get what we want, eternal life with good rewards? How much of Christianity teaches that we can do all kinds of sins as long as we get them properly legally dealt with or get the church to absolve us from them because we'll still get our salvation and our reward? Is it really the most important question? I'll give you a couple of examples to think about. What about Moses when God spoke about starting over with Moses' family? Was Moses' response primarily concerned with his own salvation? Or was Moses willing to give up his eternal life for others? Did Moses have his priorities wrong? Did Moses love people more than God loved people? Was Moses wrong not to think about his own salvation first? What about Paul when he wrote that he would gladly give his life that his fellow Jews might be saved? Was Paul's primary concern with his own salvation? Was Paul wrong not to make his own salvation the most important issue? Shouldn't the most important issue, the most important question be, do we know God? Not know about him, but actually know him. And of course, The consequence of genuinely knowing God, according to Jesus, is that we do experience eternal life. So eternal life is salvation, but it's not because the most important question is how do we be saved, but the most important question is who is God and do I know him? Our primary concern is not about ourselves. When we really know God, we stop worrying about our eternal salvation because we trust God with our life. We know him and know how trustworthy and how good he is. We appreciate his character and his methods and his government and his kingdom. And we love him so much and trust him so much, we will say like Christ to the Father, Father, into your hands I give you my life. I surrender my spirit. I want to be in heaven because I love you. But Lord, if you know heaven would be better off without me, it's okay. I trust you with my eternal life. Use me in the way that's best for your kingdom. Isn't that the most important question, to know God? I think that is the most important question. Who is God? And Jesus has revealed to us who he really is. So I challenge you as you study this week to always come back to the question, do I know God as Jesus revealed him to be? 
as the creator, the designer, the builder of reality, whose laws are the laws upon which all reality operate. And then begin sharing that picture in your community. It's life transforming. And I know many of you have emailed us and shared with us how you've been set free from that fear and that concern with self. And you have so much more joy in your life. Let's close with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are our creator God and you have built reality to operate in harmony with your nature and kingdom. We ask that you will send your spirit to take the victories of Christ, reproduce it in us so we have new hearts, a new spirit, with new motives, and that our love for you will, will cast out all fear and concern for ourselves and that we will be powerful witnesses on this earth today of what your love can do. We pray in your holy name. Amen.